0: Along the way, the men in suits would tell me, you know, oh, you've got to have an appraisal system and you've got to have a bonus system. You can't have a retail business without a bonus system. And it was like, hell, we can, actually.
1: We definitely didn't know. We didn't know what we were doing in some ways. But what we did know was what we wanted to try and build.
2: There's a reason you just heard two voices instead of one. In this episode, I'm interviewing the pair of co-CEOs behind Cook. They make frozen ready meals using the same ingredients and techniques you would use at home. Ed Perry co-founded the company in 1997 with his business partner, Dale Penfold. Then in 2001, Rosie Brown came aboard, eventually becoming co-CEO. If you think sharing CEO duties sounds complicated, then imagine sharing them with your sibling. Well, that's exactly what Ed and Rosie are doing, as they are brother and sister. Cook's products are now available in 850 stores across the UK, not including the 94 cookshops they actually own themselves, but they very nearly didn't make it. The 2007 financial crisis took them to the brink of bankruptcy, and between COVID, supply shortages, and the rising costs of energy and ingredients, the last few years have been pretty stormy. So, how Have they managed it? And what was it like for them at the kitchen table growing up? I'm betting the food at home was either immense or terrible.
0: There's a great quote, um, no one can press your buttons like your sibling can because they were the ones who created them.
2: Yeah, so
1: there are four of us. I'm the eldest, Rosie's number three, Uh, my brother James, who I ran the business with from 2000 to 2008. And then we've got a youngest brother, Alexis, who um, is about 12 years younger than me. So, yeah, there's lots of us. So, yeah, I mean, it was busy. Lots of us, lots of opinions. But we grew up with our parents running two small coffee shops in Kent in the 1980s. And out of those two coffee shops, a bakery grew in 1987. So we grew up in sort of small business world, really, wasn't it? You know? We- yeah,
0: it was absolutely. And I think um, Sunday lunches were spent discussing sandwich fillings. We spent our teenage years growing up kind of in the coffee shops working in them so there was always entrepreneurial thinking there was always kind of have a go mentality in the house
1: and also struggle i think if we're honest um you know four kids two coffee shops small little bakery it was quite tough financially for us a slightly odd sort of juxtaposition because we had we had a rich granny so rich granny paid for us to go to private school so we went to these nice private schools where I certainly I don't know about you Rosie but I certainly was very conscious of being I felt a bit like the old one out there everyone's dads were sort of lawyers and bankers and what have you and my dad had a little coffee shop in the town so it was very visible um, to other kids and other kids were on occasion quite horrible. Um, and I remember, yeah I, I, yeah, I struggled with it a bit. And so by the time I left school, I had no appetite to go to university or anything. I just wanted to get on with it. But, you know, it was definitely a happy, happy household. and
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing that's, for us, been pretty formative in the business is it was our parents both had a very strong faith. So we grew up in a household with a lived faith where Sunday church was a thing where, you know, mum used to every every week on Sundays bring home people, all the lonely, sad people she could find basically from church to join the family at Sunday lunch. And I think that spirit of inclusiveness and relationship was what we grew up with. So, so normal measures of success in a household, you know, which are often career, money, uh, degrees, exam results, weren't what was important. I think when we growing up it was much more about relationship with others service to others doing something useful so yeah I think that it was It sure sounds
1: a bit like the Waltons really but it was bloody annoying at the time also you know she would bring all sorts of people back but it was uh, you know it's one of those things in hindsight you look back on it and go gosh that was that was really healthy and has certainly informed who we are now. And I think we all have sort of varying degrees of faith um, and that's certainly not what a business is about. You know, I don't really have much faith, but I'm not sure where you are on that spectrum now and I know siblings are on different, but we don't really talk about that much, do we? Well,
2: let's let's talk about it. Rosie, your face was almost surprised to hear Ed saying it like that. So where are you on the faith spectrum right now?
0: (laughs) Me? Um, that's, a, that's a really difficult question. I wish I had an answer for you. I don't know. I think it's been the same answer since I was about 16 when I listened to kind of Losing My Religion by R.E.M. And I was like, that was me. And that song was for me. And um, I've sort of been looking ever since and I haven't quite found it, if I'm honest. I think I've been traveling and very inspired by all the great religions, so I love learning about them. I, you know, I seek things out, but I haven't landed anywhere. If I'm honest, I think the life of Pi was a really informative book for me on faith because it taught me there's sort of more than one way to the truth. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking, but I, and I, but I'm, I've become more peaceful as I've got older. That life's a mystery.
1: Well, certainly, certainly, as I get older, you know that old oh, say apocryphal f- phrase, you know, the less I know, and I'm more acutely aware of how profoundly ignorant I am about loads of things so I certainly whilst I might have been uh, age 21 sort of cocksure and confident enough to call myself an atheist there's no way in a million years I call myself an atheist anymore um life is far too much of a mystery so um I suppose I have a sort of woolly spirituality without it being defined by any faith or religion or religion sorry
2: yeah I think it's, it's really interesting to hear this are you both parents
1: yes Yes. Oh yes. gosh,
2: what a what a big sigh. The look on the face. Just before <laughs> just
1: before we got on the call, we had ten minutes we were having a good old moan about various children. So I've got four.
2: Bloody hell, you as well. Jesus, that's
1: yeah. carrying on a family tradition at least. Yeah. They range in age from eighteen down to seven. Oh just turned eight actually. Eighteen to eight.
0: And I've got I've got three teenage boys, which is a bit like living with the in betweeners but but uh smells yes, of links
2: okay so i want to know a little bit about cook like what i think first and foremost what was actually like the inspiration like why cook why is that a business that you would logically start what is the uh what's the inspiration so very much
1: very very much has its roots in my parents business so they had the two coffee shops my mother's best friend used to make the cakes for the coffee shop they looked homemade tasted homemade they were all frozen and she set up, this is a lady called Dan Amar, who is just a spectacular baker. And she set up a company called the Handmade Cake Company with my parents in 1987. And... After I left school in 1989, didn't want to go to university, spent a year working in London, hated it and came out of that age 19 knowing I never wanted to work for anybody else. A good lesson to learn early. So I joined mum and dad's business. as a and my Well, my first job for them was I set up a tiny little factory shop for them in Maidenhead, which sold the cakes and the puddings that would be made in the bakery. All frozen, carrot cakes, chocolate cakes, chocolate roulards, raspberry pavlova rolls, things that we still sell today. Uh, they're all frozen, all different from what you could find in the supermarket. And I spent a year doing that when I was about twenty, twenty-one. Um, and it was while I was working in that tiny little shop that I thought we were brought up with mum cooking for the freezer. So once a week, once every couple of weeks, she would make a big batch of chicken casserole, chili con carne. There were obviously loads of us, and we would eat some of it. And then she would put whatever's left over in an old ice cream tub and put it in the chest freezer at home she would then whip that out on a tuesday or wednesday night bung it in the microwave and that's what we'd eat that that evening and it was always absolutely delicious and i thought well you know we're selling these cakes and these puddings if we could make savory food like mum used used to make for us for the freezer then it could be something that could work as a high street shop type thing so i was i was 21 at the time. And I spent the next three years still working for my parents' bakery business as a salesperson. So I'd go around the south of England selling cakes and puddings to caterers, coffee shops, those sort of people. And that's where I met this guy called Dale, who was chef at a local tourist attraction and i just kind of fell in love with him in a business way um and i would sit in his tiny little office and i'll tell him about this idea of how i wanted to make frozen casseroles that looked and tasted homemade and i did this for about i must have done it about three or four times and then i got to the age of 25 and i thought i've just got to do this so i sat down with mum and dad and i said look you know this frozen casserole thing i've been banging on about I've, i've got to do it and they said look you know we've been By that stage, I think they'd been running their business for about 14 or 15 years and they were just about making some money. I mean, there'd been a long, hard slog Um, and it was still quite a small business. And they said, look, if you if you want to do this, we get it, but you need to leave and do it yourself. And I, I still remember the conversation vividly because as soon as, as soon as the words were out of my father's mouth, I knew it was the right thing to do. I just said, yeah, you're right. I need to do this. So, so I left. They lent me six grand, which was all they could afford at the time. And I persuaded this guy, Dale, to leave his job and come and do it with me. And we borrowed 24 grand, 12 grand off NatWest for the retail business created two different companies 12 grand off hsbc for the production business so we had a total budget of 30 grand to set up a retail and manufacturing business which even 25 years ago was not very much money looking back on it but as your podcast with so many entrepreneurs you know the most valuable thing you have right at the beginning is your profound naivety about what you're doing because had we had the first clue about what we were trying to do, then we wouldn't have tried to do it. So we had this small pot of money. Dale had 18 grand to set up the first kitchen in Raynham in North Kent. He found an old disused pizza delivery unit and he bought some secondhand kit um, and got going. I found a tiny little shop in Farnham in Surrey. There was 200 square foot with room for about six freezers and um, off we went basically.
2: No, so you're right. It's it's the naivety. It's the sort of borderline stupidity that uh, the entrepreneurs don't really know better. And so they get going. But then that kind of brings me to Rosie, who should know better because she didn't join at the same time. Right. And so surely at this point, I mean, Ed, you're a bit disarming because you've got a bit of a tan and you've got all your hair. But I'm sure there were other examples of how maybe this business had been causing you stress.
0: Well, I mean, I used to go down at the weekends because at the time his friends were getting married and things and cover him because he was working in the shop in Farnham. And I used to go and cover him on Saturdays. So I had, I had a very good insight into what this life was like and how hard it was. So, so yeah, I must have been desperate. I mean, I was working, (laughs) looking back, I was working in an investment bank at the time. And I think I was finding it very countercultural. I think everything I'd been brought up with, where kind of relationships, and service were the measures of success. And I was in this environment where money and status and job titles were the the measures of success.
2: I mean, money is a religion, Rosie.
0: Money is a religion. And I didn't buy into money as a religion. So I was unhappy. I didn't have a sense of belonging or purpose. Um, but I was enjoying the money and I was enjoying the party lifestyle. But actually, I got a call from Ed and James, uh, our other brother who was working at the time, saying, come and join us. And, you know, I was young and foolish and I had nothing to lose either. And I said, what do you want me to do for you? And they were like, come and set up an HR department. And I said, but I know absolutely nothing about HR and they were kind of like, haha, that's cool. We don't know what we're doing either. And so so off I did. And it was a it was a risk, you know. And I think all of us individually have taken a lot of risks along the way. And I think the business has taken a lot of risks. Um, and that was certainly the first one I took in regards to cook. Um, and I got paid less, but I loved it. From day one I loved it. I had purpose. We were part of that small team that you get in startups where there's passion and energy. And I think what I'd learned about at the investment bank is what I don't want a company culture to be and the kind of company we didn't want to create and actually almost trying to create something that was the opposite of that. And so began a bit of a love affair with company culture and looking at the people that were doing it well and learning from them and trying stuff out. And we're still doing that now. But but actually trying to, how do you scale relationships in a business? And it's still something I'm really wrestling with because there's loads of books on, you know, how do you scale profit? How do you scale product? There's not much good stuff being written on how do you scale that startup culture? So for me, that's like a really interesting question. And and, you know, along the way, kind of the men in suits would tell me, you know, oh, you've got to have an appraisal system. And I was like, I don't want an appraisal system. We don't want to rank each other. Um, and you've got to have a bonus system because you can't have a retail bonus. You know, you can't have a retail business without a bonus system. And it was like, hell, we can actually. And so actually being willing to trust ourselves and the culture we're trying to create and resist the pressure to do it like it had always been done yeah
2: i think it's really important what you just said though so just to reflect every single entrepreneur that's listening will have uh smiled when you said well we don't know what we're doing either and i I love what you just shared as well about resisting the fact that everyone else tells you this is how to build a culture that actually starts from your own family values which in itself is a very unique thing so be really weird to just implement someone else's way of doing culture. Like you'd have to figure that out for yourself. Otherwise, I think it'd be really hard for your team to buy into it.
0: think You have to think for yourself and you have to be brave enough to listen and envision the kind of company you want to create. And then and then go with that. And, you know, I still have a postcard on my dresser at home and it says, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I look at it most days and I smile to myself because I don't. And I'm still making it up as we go along and we're still figuring it out.
1: I would add. I think I'd add to that, that certainly when we were younger, we definitely didn't know. We didn't know what we were doing in some ways. But what we did know was what we wanted to try and build certainly from a product perspective i think i look back on those early days and the sort of extraordinary naivety and the only thing we had going for us really back then was a really clear vision of the product and the business model which actually has largely largely sort of held out over over the years it was always about making food and selling ourselves that was one thing we were and also being very clear that the we had a founding founding statement saying that to cook using the same ingredients and techniques that a good cook would use at home so everything looks and tastes homemade we had that from the beginning we still hold to that now so that product aperture was really, really clear and we all really believed in it. And then we were also really clear from the beginning that we wanted to, I suppose, what would be called now, control the route to market. Back then it was just, we wanna have our own shops. So my brother joined us in 2000 and he'd been at Cadbury's for, he'd been on their graduate training scheme for five years or six years. And one of the first things he said when he joined was the one thing we are never going to do is sell to the supermarkets because I've spent the last five years having the shit kicked out of me by supermarkets and that's working for Cadbury's. So we've got no chance. So we're not doing that. And that became a sort of red line that he set down. And actually it's, we've been enormously fortunate, enormously fortunate that we've been able to grow without having to go down that route?
0: It's been a very conscious, strategic decision and that gets revisited, you know, every kind of three years properly, I think. I'm a great believer in never say never, but I think what Freedom from the supermarkets has allowed us to do is really invest in our values and do things how we want to do them. And I think the danger for us is the minute that, uh, you know, the supermarkets become such big customers so quickly and they become very powerful in your business. And, uh, I think we always wanted that independence to be able to run things as we wanted to run them, um, to grow as we wanted to grow, to create the product we wanted to create and the culture and the purpose. And actually that would have been a much more difficult route if we had supplied the supermarkets
1: yeah we usually have that conversation every three years when we get in the shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's tempting it's tempting right like at the end of the day in a lot of financial difficulties as i'm sure we're going to come on to there's only so many different routes you can go and any channel you haven't unlocked yet is obviously an attractive option when you're given an existential threat
0: I I actually totally agree with you. I'm I'm a pragmatist and I think b- businesses are living breathing organisms at the end of the day and they have their own energy and the markets around you have their own energy and and you've got to you've got to move with that. I I agree that I think business kind of dogma um, is actually can be quite dangerous in business, which is why I'm, I'm very much never say never when it comes to supermarkets. I think it's allowed us to build a strong brand, but who knows what the future holds? And it might be that the way we can express our values and have the greatest purpose is by doing something different for the next 10, 20 years. Who knows? You know. But I, I agree that I think business dogma can, can kill good businesses.
2: I think one of the areas that entrepreneurs get things wrong is trying to start immediately day one with purpose before you've really figured anything out, like going to the, you know, mile hundred, this is what we're going to do for the world, how we're going to help other people, how we're going to do all of these things. And it's like, buddy, you don't even know how to tie your shoelaces up in terms of business context. I've certainly been there. And actually the best thing you can do, back to Ed's point, is start with a total naivety of passion. Like passion will take you extremely far because it will take you through all the very mundane and boring days that you need to get to before you can start to think about purpose. So with that in mind, Ed, before Rosie joined, can you give us some of the really crappy, boring days that passion had to drive you through some of the negative moments before Rosie was actually able to come in and and think about how to take it to the next level for customers?
1: Well, the first week that we opened, I'm sort of working in the shop by myself. My girlfriend at the time, Sophie, would come down and help me at the weekends. But that first week, I remember we took £1,059 across six days, opened nine till five. You know, we would have three hours between customers coming in. The, the product range at the time consisted of six, six portion meals. We didn't have any one or two portion meals back then. And it's just that I just remember that week in particular... Because I, I, you know, I'm a hopeless optimist. And I just thought that this would work from day one, because of course, it's going to work. It's a brilliant idea. And I just remember sitting in that shop thinking, oh, my word, what have I done? What have I done? This is going to be really difficult. And even actually, before we opened, before we opened, Dale had just got the kitchen going. And we had about two weeks to figure out how he could make some food. And I just assumed because Dale is, Dale's, what, 14 years older than me. And he'd been a chef all his life. He'd left school at 14 and he is like, he's cockney and just proper, not a moment's self doubt about anything. And he just said, Ed mate, I can sort this, no problem. And I remember one of the first things he ever produced. I had a tiny little flat in Clapham. He produces f- lentil and fennel bake, which even now sounds like horribly
2: un- uncommercial product, but I got it, got it into my little. F- yeah, even, even in a world of many vegan consumers, I think every vegan listening was like, oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, really. no, no,
1: no. It was, <laughs> it was a terrible idea but anyway, it was like, okay well, he's made a lentil and fennel bait. Let's see what that's like and uh I remember I popped it in the oven and i and it came out again forty five minutes later and at this time it was like it had a sort of consistency of treacle and it had its sort of off um sort of musty smell and it, you know, I had one mouthful and it was spitted out disgusting, it was completely inedible, and I remember. It just hit me like it just hit, just like a slap around the face. I just went, "Oh my god, this is going to be really difficult." I just I just assumed that Dale would be able to make from day one the kind of food my mum used to make. But of course, cooking at scale when you're trying to do 150 or 250 portions at a time, which is what we were, which sounds which is quite small by what we do today by today's standards, but it's a completely different set of skills. And it was in that moment that when. I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be so difficult. And if it wasn't difficult, everyone would be doing it. It was so immediately obvious. I remember sitting on the stairs, that little little flat, crying, going, oh, my God, what have we got ourselves into? But And so it was then that I realized, actually, the idea, I never sort of lost faith in the idea. I always thought the idea is a good one. If we can make frozen food that looks and tastes homemade, that's got to work. But all the complexity then as it is now is in the making it's in the making of the food is really really difficult
2: i've got to say i'm pleased to know that a lentil and fennel pie tasted crap because it sounds crap so
1: (laughs) yeah we've never revisited that one
2: no i'm surprised I'm actually very curious. I wonder when you're cooking with scale, I, I would imagine that it's much more of a mathematical thing, right? I, I, I'm assuming, but please tell me, how much heart gets lost doing that? Because how could you really possibly, how could a brain understand how to cook for 200 people? Surely that's just pure maths.
0: Yeah, I think if you were to go into our kitchens, you would find um, chefs with real passion for what they do. I think We are cooking at such a scale where we have to have recipes and we have to follow recipes and we have to be consistent. So consistency and quality for us is absolutely kind of, that's the game. And we're getting in ingredients in the back door that are fresh. They are, you know, um, but even fresh ingredients vary. So it needs chefs who really deeply care about what they're cooking in order to cook them right. You know, cooking is an art. Um, it's not a science unfortunately and however much you try to turn cooking into a science uh, it's always going to have an art form it needs people who understand food who understands what happens to proteins that are cooked at different temperatures who understand what's the freshest veg versus not the freshest veg and all of those things so I think it is a real combination of science which is the recipes and the training And then art, which is actually that really deep understanding about food and ruse and cooking out raw wine and all of all of those kind of techniques. So I think it's both and I don't think it's either science or art in our kitchens. I think it's probably a mix of both.
2: I find it fascinating and daunting. I can't imagine it at the kind of scale. And actually, you know, I want to stay on the early journey. But as I'm here, what kind of scale are we talking? Like, How many meals do you cook on a weekly or monthly basis, whatever you track as your as your objective?
1: I mean, just in terms of the scale, in terms of how we cook, I mean, most most batches will be somewhere between about 1,500 portions and 2,000 portions. I mean, it's a really critical size because a lot of manufacturers will use huge kettles to make their stuff, but we use these things called brat pans because a brat pan is, it's like a giant saucepan which you can fry, braise. i was going to
2: ask, is that just, sounds like the big, world's biggest paella?
1: Yeah, well, yeah. That, I mean, kind of, yeah, kind of, but it, the whole thing is heated all around it, but the The reason these are so important is because if you go back to the founding statement, that is the biggest vessel that a human being can cook with. After that, you're into automation. So, for example, if we're making a roux in a brat pan, we'll do a roux, but it will be with 18 kilos of butter and 18 kilos of flour. So it's a big old roux, but it's still a roux. It's still stirred by a human being. You know, it's absolutely vital that those techniques are retained because otherwise you start compromising on the founding statement and that's what sits at the heart of the brand and that's one of the things I think that as you get bigger you always and we have plenty of debates internally about it because people come forward well we can mechanize this or we can do that but actually you have to go back the whole time and go well look are we compromising what sits at the heart of what the business is all about
0: yeah you know our whole brand rests on, does it look and taste homemade? The danger of too much mechanization is it will very shortly stop to, you know, either of those things, in which case we have no right to exist. So we have got to protect that, absolutely. And yet, you know, to that dogma point earlier, not get too dogmatic about it either. And where do those grey lines exist? What's the thin end of the wedge? You know, we agonize about those things internally often.
1: But well, the point is you should also you should also be agonizing over the decisions. And it's when the agony stops, that's when I think problems emerge in a business, if you're not agonizing about that stuff and how it pertains to what sits at the heart of the business.
0: Yeah, and I would I would say sort of the rule of thumb is can I look a customer in the eye and defend our brand statements and feel entirely comfortable doing that? And for me that's the line.
1: Yeah, I think something, um, a number that we've had in the business for a long time now is 15%. Always felt that if you, if we were to try and grow by more than 15%, then the quality wheels would fall off because ultimately you would have to scale the manufacturing too quickly. Corners would be cut. You wouldn't be able to grow the supply chain quick enough, recruit the right people quick enough, train the people in the right way, get the culture in the kitchen right. And I've always been wary of any kind of growth. Of more than 15% and that still holds true that very much still holds true now obviously the numbers now are getting bigger
2: yeah I was gonna say 15% is all very well and good but you're pushing a hundred like over 100 million in revenue right so 15% suddenly starts to become very daunting actually correct
1: so that's what we're looking at at the moment we're suddenly going all oh, things are going quite well actually because we'll do I think we'll do about 125 130 this year
2: uh Rosie you joined in 2001 right
0: yeah about then yeah
2: For me, one of my big, interestingly, still I've been an entrepreneur for over 10 years now and still one of my biggest career moments was leaving my job and actually starting a business, succeeding one, failing a couple, starting again. I don't actually feel like these were as, I don't know, terrifying moments or emotional moments as leaving my job and taking the entire plunge into entrepreneurship. And it is a very pivotal moment in people's lives and most entrepreneurs that don't go, Ed's route of sort of straight into it will experience that kind of unusual career change at the time. And actually, obviously, when you're working in investment banking or one of the big tech companies, you've got the golden handcuffs thing, which is a very smart move, right? It's a very smart move. They pay you so well. It seems mental to change your career at any point, which is how they get you. So, how did you find that transition? Like, give us some insight and idea. What was it like to go from being paid really well to being paid startup wages taking on a lot more risk not being in london all of the things
0: yeah i think i i had i had a choice and it's a you know you have crossroads moments in lives don't you and i was living in london in um clapham and i was sort of a bit of a cliche really uh doing a banking job i had a path ahead of me i had a you know uh Great lifestyle at the weekends and I could carry on that path. but I knew when I was 24 that that path was not making me happy. That was very clear to me and I think that was a gift actually that that my parents gave me in how they brought me up in the fact they took risks in the fact they always pursued happiness over safety I suppose you know they took big risks in their life and so I'd seen that and I'd seen it pay off and that's a real gift because it enabled me actually to to take that path on the crossroads without it being a really big deal it was like life is for living life is for taking risks when you know you're on a wrong path change it who cares how safe that path is who cares that it's paved with gold who cares if it's not actually what you want to be doing and it's not where you feel at home don't do it so it was actually more of an opportunity and a kind of rescue branch I was offered. I think that that made that that move easy. So yeah, I you know, and I'm really grateful I did. It's been it's been a blast and you know quite a ride. Um, and I'm very thankful I'm not still living in London, still tied to a big wage. That big wage would be nice.
2: <laughs> Obviously, co-founders disagree. Um, Co-CEOs disagree. Management teams disagree. But siblings. Definitely disagree a different way. How do you handle that stuff? Do you have like a pre-existing framework and promise to each other about how you will behave or won't behave that you've tried to keep to?
0: We've got the values of the business and if we're leading the business and we're obsessed about other leaders leading with the values, we have to lead with the values. So we've got a framework. One of our values is have fun, so we've got to enjoy the ride. One of our values is Churchill's pig, which is about don't talk up to each other, don't talk down to each other. Um, Churchill had a saying, a dog looks up to a man, a cat looks down on a man, and a pig looks the man in the and sees is equal. And so I think that's a good framework in itself, some of those values. So refer to the company values, I think. We do disagree. But we agree on a lot more. So I think we definitely, we're good at coming back to where we agree and reminding ourselves of where we agree. And that's that's been really helpful. I think breathing deeply (laughs) is always useful. And most of all, being able to draw a line and move on. You know, I'm a great believer in tomorrow is a new day. And on we go.
1: I think we would quantify it as that there's basically a 95-5 rule. So 95% of the time we got on really well and agree about anything, everything. And about 5% of the time we don't. So if you take that across a working month, say 20 working days, we'll have one day that's like, each month that's likely to be bad, where we pissed each other off for whatever reason. That disagreement is generally about style type things rather than anything more substantial. We rarely disagree on anything substantial. It does happen, but rarely. And I think the way we deal with that 5% is over the years we've, we ignore it. And I think that sometimes when, you know, if you have a very, very close working relationship with somebody, and it could apply to marriage as well, frankly, where most of the time it's fine. When it's not, you know, sometimes is it really worth talking through? I think we found anyway, for us, the best way is actually you just accept that that is inevitable reality of a working life together and you move on. Tomorrow's another day and it's all soon forgotten rather than going, oh, are you okay? What seems to be the problem? And, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, just- <laughs> Just
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep moving forward. Um, I think when we've when we really sort of disagree, I think we it's often when Ed is pushing forward commercially, and we need to push forward commercially, and I'm holding back from a purpose or a values point of view, and there can be a tension there in anything from who we supply, um, where ingredients come from, and that can create momentary tension where. I think we can go to extremes in moments of tension. So I get too purpose-y and I can get too commercial. But usually... If we sleep on it we'll both move back towards the center and i think that's actually part of the strength of this partnership is is we are coming from slightly different angles but we both we both see the strengths in each other and actually often we end up coming back to the center and we both end up giving way a bit um and it helps for better decision making that tension i think
1: and on a also on a practical level we're very disciplined about having a meeting for an hour at the very beginning of the week. So at 8am on Monday in the office, we sit down together for an hour. We go through everything on each of our to-do lists. Rosie's to-do list usually being about three times as long as mine. But um, we do that. We go through the diary for the week, where each other are. And I think that, that discipline right at the beginning of the week is important.
0: Communication.
1: There we go. So although Rosie joined in 2001 and then did all the Run, set up a HR function or people team, as we now call it, and also had three children from sort of 2001 to 2010. So in and out a little bit with maternity and stuff. Came back again to run the people side of things in 2010, 2011. And it was really then that we started working together very closely, but that was also. So, I knew how good she was, but it wasn't until 2016, I think, that you became MD. Is that yeah, right? 2015, 2015? I became MD. And that took a lot of persuasion. And then in 2017-18, she became co-CEO with me. Uh, again, that took quite a lot of persuasion. Um It certainly wasn't Rosie putting her hand up for it. It was me recognizing that really she needed to have a job title that reflected the reality of what she was already doing because... Whilst I can do some of the commercial stuff and I'm a hopeless manager like most entrepreneurs.
0: What we recognised in 2010, 2011 was that we were in a sort of typical founder structure where sort of all decisions led to Ed it was quite autocratic in some ways and the whole business was looking looking to one person and actually we'd become too big for that and so it was a very kind of deliberate decision to create a senior leadership team and move away from that kind of founder as boss kind of uh, structure because it, to enable cook's growth a very intentional move and that senior leadership team a lot of whom are still with us 10 years on and it's been a it's been a great great fun ride how big is the team now So there's about 1600 people in the whole team. Almost, uh, it's just over 25 years, I guess, you've been going right.
2: 1997, you started. 26 years, yeah. So all up and to the right. Any hard times? It always feels hard, though, doesn't it?
1: I mean, it really really does. It's people often go, "Oh, it's so successful and everything." And I think you know the way we feel about it. We come into work every day to a load of problems. But I suppose that's the point. But it honestly, it never feels easy. And sometimes it will feel easy for a week. Or two weeks and we'll say actually a few weeks ago we were saying it feels suspiciously good at the moment and then Oh, oh god god do I relate to that it never ever lasts but I think if I mean looking back at the most difficult times the obvious standout one is 2008 we had grown through the early 2000s on borrowed money back in the days when the banks were lending any amount of money to any old idiot and we certainly were any old idiots and we borrowed a huge amount of money to open a massive new kitchen. We were we were turning over something like 5 million at the time, and we were losing about 400 grand a year. And yet we were, we were able to borrow about 4.5 million to build a big new kitchen and open about 10 shops in a year. This was a moment we were going to grow big, big, grow fast, all on borrowed money. And that coincided neatly with the financial crash. We opened the kitchen in 2007. We opened the 10 shops. The financial crash happened within a matter of a few months we were 20 25% off on our sales and all our all our financial forecasts which were already pushed to the wire were just like blown out of the water just completely blown out the water. So we sat down with our head of finance, a guy called Jeff Turner, who is still with us, and he said, Chat, if you don't do something radical, you're going. We're going to go out of business in March." And he showed us uh, what we what became known as the Wiggly Line, which is the cash flow line. And we all worshipped at the altar of the cash flow line uh, from then on, and we still do. So you are religious. Bloody knew it. So yeah. So the Wiggly Line showed us going out of business. So we. You know, we had to cut every single cost out the business. We could have made people redundant. Um, it was just a horrendous time. The only things that, you know, we stopped rubbish collection from the shops. We, did you know, window cleaners, anything. If it wasn't nailed down, it went. The only thing we didn't compromise on was the quality of ingredients coming in the door. Because I think once you start messing about with that, you forfeit your right to survive as a brand. So if you get into hard times, just be a bit careful about what you cost. There are... St- cut there are some things that are sacred in hindsight the other really important thing that happened back then was we had you know when we started the business getting funded just wasn't a thing you know certainly for a small food business it never even occurred to me to try and raise money it was all always about creating a business for the long term this is not something to be built up and sold this is something we want to build to be a long term thing, a lifetime's work. And back in 2008, it soon sort of got out into the industry that we were in trouble. And although we were still relatively small at that stage, if you read The that you would have probably heard about us. And so the vultures started circling. and We had offers of investment on the table. And we came within a week of taking some money. At the last minute, one of the guys who was part of this sort of, it was essentially angels, he turned around and he said, look, Ed, if I was you, I wouldn't take this money. Because I think if you really batten down the hatches for two years, you can squeeze through without it. And I think if you take it, you'll regret taking it in the future. And it was the kindest, kindest, most valuable advice you know we've ever had as a business because I said and went you know what I think you know okay all right let's double down on this and we did we had two years of total misery trying to squeeze through but we did squeeze through and I think by not taking that investment then it's meant that we carry on being privately owned you know we don't have any private equity or anything and it means that we do have this wonderful beautiful freedom to run the business in exactly the way that we want to run it which is a huge gift so so good things came out of it but yeah it was a it was a brutal brutal time
2: it's very unique you owe that person uh, maybe even a, a lifetime subscription of uh a freezer food but anyway don't want to dub you in it it's really unusual to hit the scale that you've hit without having to take money. And it isn't always necessarily a choice. It's literally like, how are we going to serve that many customers without a serious investment? And I haven't heard it often on this podcast. So firstly, massive kudos to you, because that is phenomenal and an envious position. But I also appreciate that's the difference as well when you're like, okay, what are we really doing here? And I think if you've decided from the start that you're building a lifetime business, that's also super different, because that's not really the place that Most entrepreneurs start, and if that is a genuine belief, that will keep you away from certain decisions. Full stop.
1: Yeah, I also think, though, looking back on it, we were so lucky. There's no way, frankly, we could have done what we're doing if we started it in, say, 2009. Because looking back on it, you know, just to get. The business off the ground i went to two high street banks and borrowed 12 grand in my local natwest and my local hsbc which well, that just doesn't happen now i went to see the bank manager i filled out a form <laughs> and wrote my bid, and he you know without any security i got 12 grand off each of them and then in the early 2000s we benefited hugely from the madness that was going on in the banking industry in, in in terms of our ability to borrow money. That it's just not possible now. You just can't do it. So we we were lucky in terms of our timing that we could borrow money like that. I love I love the um the quote by uh, David Lee Roth, the sort of hairy '80s rocker, probably a bit before your time. Um, but he he. He was in the band Van Halen, and he, he's, he's very quotable, actually, if you look at the internet. But we really, we've always loved the quote. we had it knocking around the business for twenty years. Just when you think you've got the rat race licked, boom, faster rats. And, you know, in the same way we had the meltdown in 2008, Covid, we were really lucky. We were the right side of things from a demand perspective. It was horrendous manufacturing food, but, you know, we're frozen food, we we were in a really good space. And then we're thinking after two years of that, we're about 30% up on where we had been beforehand. And then last year, inflation kicked in and inflation kicked in into the ingredients world so fast, so fast. Within a matter of a couple of months after the war broke out in Ukraine, all of our ingredients prices were 18, 20% higher just out of nowhere and so our margins just completely disappeared and we'd completed a uh, financing about oh six to twelve months prior to that something like that but relatively recent refinancing and all our numbers have been really great we've given ourselves huge headroom on the covenants you know the business had grown hugely overcut you know we were we were finally finally we were into the promised land and then suddenly march april you know may last year it's like holy shit Shit, what is going on? This is a nightmare again. And you're back in it. You know, you think we've got too big for this to ever happen again. Everything's fine now. It's sort of sorted it all out. But God, we had definitely the worst six, seven, eight months that we've had since 2008 last year. And it sort of came out of nowhere. And that's, you know, that's the thing about business. You, you just never quite know
0: yeah control the controllables was the message of last year. um that was all we could do. It was a storm and we found ourselves in the middle of this storm, which we hadn't which we hadn't foreseen. but control the controllables we we created a storm plan and and on we go. you know, fingers crossed this year is going to be a bit more stable. but i think I think that's the thing about business, isn't it? I mean, it's felt like crisis management, frankly, since Covid, and only just beginning to feel like maybe we're not in a crisis now. So <laughs> that's probably a foolish thing to say. um But it's 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 interesting and exciting to be entering a phase where I hope there will be more kind of um, thriving rather than just surviving the storm. Actually, creating again and building again, and and really kind of envisioning the business we want to build again, rather than just yeah, hold holding onto your hats through sort of Covid. Then we had a nasty cyber attack, and then inflation
1: we're going away in 2 weeks time the senior team are going away and, and the number one subject that we're going to talk about for 2 days is the future of our supply chain because we do have a very long term perspective as a business in terms of ownership and stuff and we're not we're not dressing the business up to sell it or anything you know the thing that underpins all of that ultimately is the supply chain and customers are going to be becoming more and more aware about the plight of British farmers and where their food is really coming from in the first place. And actually, we've got to be thinking five to ten years in advance about actually how how are we going to do this in a way that the food is truly sustainable? Because at the moment, I think there's a lot of labels out there around food that, that is used more for marketing purposes than anything potentially that's really substantive.
0: It's the single biggest challenge I think we face is what to do about this. So we could produce a 100% sustainable regenerative lasagna where everything down to the flour is farmed on a regenerative farm and all the rest of it. But that's probably going to cost £13 and the customer's probably not going to pay £13 for the lasagna. So how on earth do we begin to live our values and do the right thing in a, in a world where the customer might not be ready to pay for it is a really deeply gnarly business challenge. We don't have the answers, but we are leaning into that challenge uh, and we'll find a path through it, but, but it's, it's dead difficult.
2: <laughs> Ed Perry and Rosie Brown with a look at faith, valuing your staff and the power of working together. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Surter. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollman. See you next time.